This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for part three of the Air Force Fire Protection History Series. If you've not done so yet, make sure you go to listen to part one and part two of this series. Part one covers the inception of the Army Air Corps Fire Service through the 1950s, and part two covers the 1960s and 1970s. Again, this series is led by Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Using source material given to him and discovered in his pursuit, Sergeant Moore put together a presentation covering the material presented today and in other history episodes. The material can be found on our website, firedog.us, so make sure to go check out the site if you're interested in reading the source documents, and while you're there, check out some of the other available episodes. Part three of the history series will cover the 1980s through the 1990s. Please welcome Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. All right, sir. Welcome back. We covered a lot of great information in both part one and two. So for those listeners who haven't listened to part one or part two yet, you know, stop what you're doing. Go back, listen to those episodes. I think a lot of what we covered sets us up well for what we're going to cover here in part three. Uh, So you don't want to miss that. Sir, where's a good place to start for the 1980s and 90s? Hey, so um, thanks for uh, having me back again. But uh, so I think we should start with uh, with another. Did you know, like I always uh, open these sessions with. Uh, So I'll open with that question and uh, simply says, did you know uh, that in 1937, the standard nozzle for Air Force crash rescue or Air Force crash trucks was the bean nozzle? Uh, now, the bean nozzle was a high-pressure nozzle used by Florida citrus growers, right? So how did we get a nozzle that was designed for uh, agriculture, essentially, into the fire service? Uh, so, uh, and what I typically do is, uh, so I kind of open with that, and then uh, there's a photo here that I'll show of a, of a nozzle here from the, from the early days and then I just asked the question is, how heavy do you think it is? Now, the photo that I show is actually a, a photo of a Hardy nozzle, which was which came a little bit later after the uh, the bean nozzle. But I uh, asked how much it weighed and uh, the responses are, you know, three pounds, six pounds, nine pounds or five pounds. And so the correct answer is actually nine pounds um, is what this nozzle weighed. Uh, so, yeah, looking at it myself, it looks pretty small. I mean, it really looks like a garden hose attachment. Yeah, yeah. So that picture, obviously, you know, there is is not to scale, but uh, uh, certainly is a hefty, hefty little little piece of equipment there. I uh, can't imagine, you know. Well, I think if we if we were called to to utilize this, we we get to the place with to you know get in shape to where we needed to. But you know, I thought that was. Uh, Pretty cool little piece of history and also just a, an opportunity to see how we've grown uh, over time and how technology has benefited the fire service. And for those listeners interested in what it looks like or curious what it looks like, it'll be on our Instagram and Facebook pages. You can go check that out. Now, is this looks like one of those cases where we may have went for full circle again with our history. Okay. And that with the advent of ultra high pressure now, mm. this looks similar yeah. the, to a ultra high pressure kind of um, kind of contraption. You know, it, it looks like it 
well, it says high pressure nozzle. And so it probably provided some kind of mist. So I'm wondering if, you know, we're, we're going full circle again with our technology. Yeah, very well could be. Um, and uh, yeah, it certainly does look like, uh, I guess I never really looked at it, but, or considered it that way, but uh, I don't know what your experience is with the, uh, not, I hate to bring this up, but you have to, right? We're talking about our history here, but uh, the Pyrolance nozzle is kind of what it reminds me of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, the, the Pyrolance, that uh, that didn't turn out so well for us. and uh, But it did, it did provide or does provide ultra-high pressure. And I know there's some bases out there that have that thing still in service. Now, how yeah. often it gets used, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've been told it'd be effective on, you know, basement fires and of course, compartmentalized fires in aircraft, which that was the whole reason it came around, right? There was a confined aircraft fire on a, the bomber yeah. that they couldn't put out for, I want to say a week now, oh, wow. I but can't, uh, yeah. they couldn't put out that fire out for a week and Pyrolance was uh, a result of that or one of the results of that fire. Awesome. Yeah, piece of history there. All right, so uh, we'll jump right into the 80s, and uh, I'm pretty excited to share this this piece of uh, information here or a bit of our history is really uh, the birth or the coming of our uh, of the of our fire protection model. Uh, it was born in in 1980, actually, and I actually just got this information from uh, Chief Beatty. Actually, sent it over to me. Uh, I never knew how our model was created or you know, why it was created or anything about it. Um, but uh, he sent me some documents and uh, I'm just excited to be able to share it uh, with the rest of the field, if you, if for those that don't know already. Uh, so uh, it actually started out as a competition. Um, back uh, then, uh, uh, came from the headquarters, um, AFSISA or AFBISA, uh, back then, the Air Force Engineer Support Agency, which later became known as AFSISA and now today um, known as AFKEC. Uh, but it was then Senior Master Sergeant uh, Donald Warner who uh, set this up and, and believed that, you know, we needed something to represent us and something uh, for us to kind of stand behind. So uh, what they did was send a, uh, make it a competition and sent out ballots to uh, the field. So they sent out uh, these forms to every base um, or every department at every base. And uh, the only requirements were that uh, you couldn't have individual submissions. Um, so, you know, for example, at Masao Air Base, Masao was only allowed to submit one um, proposed motto uh, for the competition. So it required you to get together with your team, you know, with your department at that time and and kind of jot down some things and refine and, and work out the process. But um, initially, what they were what they were going to do was kind of there at the uh, AFCSA level is select the best ten percent and then present those for voting. Uh, but what they later found was all the submissions that they got about thirty or so. Uh, they decided to present all of them, so they took the 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 quotas off and they basically left it completely up to the field, which I thought was pretty awesome to develop um, our motto and really uh, talk about what we stand for. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Reading through some of the runner ups. So 
I, I don't want to steal your thunder, and uh, but I think most of us know what the motto is, right? The desire to serve, ability to perform, and the courage to act. Correct, yeah. And looking at some of the runners up here, the number two would be guardians of life and property. Protect, yeah. And then number three, protection is our profession. Number four, prepared for the challenge. Number five, fire prevention, life's extension. I'd say we did a good job in uh, the one that we picked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd have to the, agree. Yeah, the, the, the runner-up had 3,260 votes, and then the desire to serve, ability to perform, Curse Act had 4,142 votes, according to this. Yes, it did. And uh, I'd like to highlight, too, uh, just for a little bit of comedy, but, uh, you know, some of the ones that didn't make that top 10% cut. Um, and some of them I kind of look at as, you know, fire, fire guys being fire guys, you know, we kind of never change. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I thought some of these were, you know, kind of, kind of comical, uh, but also some were kind of, you know, maybe even that, that cockiness too, uh, sometimes, or that swag, if mm-hmm. you want to call it mm-hmm. coming out. Yep. Um, but, uh, let's see, uh, one of them was, uh, uh, for those special times. All right. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> uh, yep. You know, and what it doesn't tell us is, uh, you know, where where these uh, selections or nominations came from. Um, so here's a here's another one. Uh, our one desire to keep you from fire. You know, so nice. Yeah. Nice. So you had some nice rhyming ones, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you always run the risk of things like that happening. I mean, uh, this is a little off topic, but there was a um, there was a social media poll. I think some years ago there was a company trying to name its its cruise ship. Okay. I don't know if you remember this? No. And they they put out a a plug for it, and I want to say it was through Facebook, and it may have been through other avenues. But the winning name that uh, that came out of that was Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> so so you you always you always run the risk of uh you know especially with Air Force firefighters of running into situations like this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I got I gotta give you one more and then uh, we can move on. I thought this one was pretty funny too. It says uh uh life and property is such a precious thing. Remember only you can make our bells ring. So <laughs> nice. Very uh, imagine imagine that painted in the uh Lewis F. Garland Fire Academy. That'd have been cool. <laughs> yeah, so um so yeah, you know, you know, history for for those that may think history's boring, uh I'd have to uh <laughs> I have to beg to differ there. Well it's it's clear that we've always had somewhat of a sense of humor at least yeah for sure uh so uh as as i close up this piece uh i like to you know kind of acknowledge though uh the winner uh for uh this for that motto that we still have today uh, came out of uh the 435th civil engineering squadron Rhein-Main air base there in germany and it was actually originated by a staff sergeant uh, william j sawyer so again you're looking at you know, the motto of um, United States Air Force fire protection, right? And it was a staff sergeant that developed that. So um, I love to share that piece too, because it's like, it doesn't matter what your rank is, you know, you know, what level you're serving at, you can have an impact and a lasting impact um, on our career field. Yeah, absolutely. And the, another piece, a little piece of history, recent history is the Space Force motto 
was developed, I want to say, by an E4. Really? I did not know that. And, uh, it was an E3, actually, A1C Daniel Sanchez. And the motto is Semper Supra, which means always above. So to your point, it doesn't matter what your rank is, you can have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'll uh, continue on with the 80s. And, um, you know, again, development and training was was a thing for us, right? We, we continued to do that, and that was no different uh, in the 80s. Uh, so uh, one of the things I, I like to highlight is is the P-19 was launched in uh, the 1980s. Um, you know, for me, this was the first uh, fire service vehicle I got my license on, right? So you got to my first base there at Vandenberg, and this was the first thing I began to train on and, and ultimately got my license on. And then came the P-23 and you know, the structural vehicles and, and the uh, the tanker or tender, depending on what part of the country you're from. Uh, but yeah, I don't know, Matt, if you've ever had the opportunity uh, to back one of these things on uh, a C-130, uh, but it is it is a challenge. Uh, for sure. No, sir, I haven't. Yeah, so I, I had that distinct pleasure too. Um, it was for, for exercise purposes, but, uh, but yeah, very, very unique uh, process. Um, you know, at some point uh, you get uh, far enough back up on the ramp to where those, your side mirrors have to come in. Right. So you're actually being guided in um, by voice only at some point um, doing that. So uh, you wonder how many times that went wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't heard of anything crazy, but, uh, you know, I, our, our uh, you know, exercise went smoothly and we didn't have any issues, but man, I was sweating the whole time for sure. Yeah. I think that brings up a good point that when you, when you're put under um, a pressure like that, that uh, we tend to perform pretty well, you know, and I know this is, this is kind of a small example of that back in a truck into a aircraft, but uh, I, I bet there's uh there's probably not too many mishaps in this case. Yeah. You know, we, we, we get it figured out. There's a bunch of us standing there making sure that everything's going well. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, a super nervous and anxious load master too, making sure things uh, go right. Uh, so some other things we did uh, for development um, in 1982 is we is we launched a lighter, smaller SCBA with with uh, chemical capabilities. Right, um, uh, it doesn't tell us uh, exactly which uh, air pack this was, but I'd have to assume and I. Haven't been able to validate, but I believe this is a, probably our inner spiral um, pack that came on online during this time. Um, I don't know if you remember again back in the day um, as a younger guy, we had two masks, right? Uh, we had mm -hmm. uh, the one for Kim Capes, and then you had the regular standard. Um, was it S four or I think it was was the the latest model? Yeah, I was I was a young guy back then, so it was one of those circumstances for me where they handed me stuff and I just nodded my head, you know. So I don't, <laughs> I don't remember her names and stuff like that. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, no worries. Uh, yeah, I think it was S four was the latest one um, before it was all replaced by the by the MSA which we have today. And you know, again, we talk about history kind of repeating itself. And we're going in circles, but you know, now I don't know if you're tracking with the new um, contract for. Um, our SCBA, uh, we're going back to the two mass system, right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, so, and there were some discussions, you know, with that as well, whether, you know, we really needed a, a Kim Capes mask, um, you know, but, right. uh, but yeah. Yeah. You're kind of d doubling up the workload of the uh, SCBA 
guess it'd be yes. a test testing guys, but uh, you know, there could be a, a good reason for it. And, and we did an episode with Mr. Fred Terran and he last year at the end of last year's and he shed some light on the, uh, the process with SCB acquisition and, and the, the bidding and mm-hmm. how to go about getting that contract. And it's, uh, it's a over hundred million dollar contract. And yeah. uh, when, when you start talking about that much money, that's when Congress gets involved. So this is a, it's a complicated process and it takes years to, to kind of figure out. And we're just at the latter stages of it now to my understanding, but yeah, why we selected two masks, who knows? Um, but it's interesting though. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, either way, I think we're going to, we're going to get the job done. I, I think a lot of it came from, um, you know, I shouldn't say a lot of it, but I know one of the decision points was a lot of the issues that we have with the current mask, you know, with it trying to be a two in one, it, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't do either or well, maybe, um, or as well. And so mm-hmm. I think that was a big uh, determining factor into going back into two. Yeah. Yeah. If we can get away from the breathing tube with canister, you know, I'd yeah. be happy with that personally. <laughs> For sure. Because yeah. that is a cumber, cumbersome, we have a cumbersome ensemble right now. Absolutely. I, I say it, or I at least think it every time we get into it is, there's got to be something better than this. You know, yeah. we're living in a, a time in our history where it's uh, the, the t- technology seems to be, I don't want to say underdeveloped, but it, in its infancy mm-hmm. when it comes to seaburn protection. Yeah. So in the eighties, you know, we were looking to get better. Um, and still today, right. In 2021, we're, we're, we're finding ways, you know, the, I guess the good news is that we're still not, using the same packs from the eighties, right? <laughs> yeah, that's so good that, news. Yeah, that that's progress. So um so can't com- complain too much about that. Um but also uh and I kind of talked about this, I think it was in episode one um or part one of the series um uh, about salty demo exercise. So that happened in nineteen eighty five and again uh the primary uh goal of this exercise uh was to um, to test the base's ability to recover right after attack. So one, reduce the magnitude of attack um, and then minimize the impact uh, of the attack on sortie generation. And then, you know, essentially test how long it would recover uh, or how long it would take to recover from the attack. Um, and so, uh, but this, you know, some other things came out of this and the two big things that came out of this also was EOD and, disaster preparedness, which is now EM, uh, also came under the umbrella and and guidance and leadership of uh, CE at that time, uh, or as a result of this exercise. Yeah, just it's interesting to see that we are close to three decades removed from from Salty Demo, and we're just kind of now transitioning into a different uh, near-peer kind of application of our war fighting capabilities and we're starting to get into the history that is familiar to us a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So something else that happened uh, during the eighties was, you know, that quality of life term that we use in the air force was kind of, you know, that term was kind of coined by uh, civil engineers, if you will. Um, And what I mean by coined, it was, uh, it was utilized uh, in a way or as a phrase, right. To, um, um, or even 
as a way to be programmed uh, for budgeting purposes and programmed for, for, for funding. And uh, this really came about because, um, uh, you know, as, you know, the uh, Vietnam War started to uh, ramp down, right, and we started to normalize as a, as a country and the draft, you know, went away, we weren't there, the competition, I guess, um, or how should I say this, uh, you had more people wanting to go to college, right, than necessarily join the service. And so, um, they kind of use this as a recruitment tool, really, right? They said, hey, you know, if we want people to come into the Air Force and serve, we need to be able to provide them with a certain quality of life that is comparative to what they would have if they kind of stayed as a civilian. Um, so uh, there was a whole strategy behind this. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting that there was, uh, you know, uh, an intent, right, to uh, or a deliberateness to basically provide, uh, you know, uh, better things for our people. And I think, you know, the Air Force has a, um, a good reputation for that. And uh, it's kind of cool as I was looking through the history books to, to kind of stumble upon that and to see that this is where it started. Yeah, that is cool. And like everything else and like what we talked about in part one and part two, you kind of have to put you have to consider the history of the time period. And in the eighties, it's, you know, we were in, I guess a cold war and there was no deployment really, you know, is a, a few, a few deployments here and there throughout the world, but no real big campaign. Yeah. And how do you, so how many people are joining the military is the first question. And then the second question is how do you, how do you keep them in? And so there may have been some kind of a, a recruitment issue during this time period. And yeah, you kind of go to have to go to the drawing board and figure out well, how are we going to get people to come in and, and stay in the service? It, to me, this looks like an answer to that. Yeah, or, or at least helped with it, right? Uh, so, so, so two other things that happened in the 1980s uh, to close that out before we move into the 90s. Um, not necessarily uh, this one, not necessarily fire specific, but more so for the entire you know uh, Department of Defense was the Goldwaters Nichols Act right, 1986. Um, you know, this was uh, an act um, that was uh, implemented to essentially, uh, and I'm super over, over, and I'm really oversimplifying this, right, but essentially to get the four branches of service um, on the same page, right, and for us to operate more jointly, um, whether that be through equipment, whether that be through communications, um, operations, and things like that. So, um so pretty, pretty cool that that's what that started. And I, you know, we still have our challenges, right? Um, when we talk about uh, joint operations and integration with our other services. Um, but I think we were a lot further along uh, than we were um, then. And then the last thing was in 1987, um, some of our listeners may, be, may remember the, the Air Force Readiness Challenge. Um, that firefighters actually joined uh, that challenge in 87. And I know this was slated to actually come back last year. I know the Silver Flag team down there was working. Uh, they kind of did a mock uh, uh, run through of this assessment um, and what it would look like for fire guys. And they kind of had a program put together. And then, of course, COVID hit. Um, but uh, I don't know about you, but our base here or our squadron uh, here at uh, Masawa, we actually got an invitation 
uh, to attend the 2020 games, if you will. But uh, obviously, COVID shut that down. Yeah, I remember AFKIC PA doing kind of a marketing campaign on social media for that. I mean, they had the general talking about it and everything, but yeah, it kind of went away. And you know, my assumption, like yours, is that COVID probably put a squash to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I know a lot of the uh, the older generation kind of remembers those days, and but I I've always heard good things about it, uh, uh, and uh, you know it was just an opportunity for for you to go and kind of showcase your skills. So like you know like Ammo has their um, I can't remember the name of it uh, their uh, their rodeo, you know who can load weapons the fastest, you know and things mm-hmm. like that. And I think this is our version. Uh, of that so yeah Yeah. and i've heard good things about it as well from some of those firefighters that are still around that talk about it and shout out to mr keith pellerin out there at jay bear he has a book so for those of you stationed at jay bear go get with mr pellerin and uh, ask to see his book that it highlights the readiness challenge that he participated in i want to say when he was stationed in germany or i'd say overall it'd be good to bring something like that back if we could manage it absolutely so yeah, that 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 kind of closes the 1980s. Um, you know, I think it was a good decade, and I, a lot more things happening. And again, I'll, I'll kind of go back to the beginning, right, where this is a, a brief history, right, um, and it's just pieces that I've pulled out personally. But, um, so I didn't leave anything out intentionally. Obviously, I can't capture it all, uh, but I tried to grab some of the highlights, or at least the things that resonated with me, um, as I looked through the history books. So on to the 90s. Um, a lot of good things happened in the 90s, too. Uh, you know, one of the primary things being uh, the fire school, right? Um, uh, the fire school uh, continued to uh, thrive, but uh, it actually relocated in 1993 uh, to Goodfellow Air Force Base. So uh, Chinook Air Force Base was um, uh, closed by BRAC and on September 1st, 1993. And then the fire school moved down to Goodfellow Air Force Base earlier that same year um, and resumed classes um, in August. Um, uh, So they, uh, the first classes uh, immediately offered at Goodfellow included a 37 day apprentice course, a rescue tech course, a hazmat tech course, fire inspector and fire investigator, uh, course and uh, firefighter supervisor course, actually. Uh, and so, um, and again, in 1995, the school was uh, renamed um, after Chief Lewis F. F. Garland, who, as we talked about in part two, did a lot of great things for the fire service. Uh, so that happened um, in 93 there. A firefighter supervisor course. Now, is that an early remnant of the fire officer courses? So that uh, I do not know. Um, but uh, I do know that, and this is well before actually during the Goodfellow days, but uh, during the during the Chinook days, I believe there was a firefighter supervisor course as well uh, that kind of focused okay. on, you know, training the supervisor to be that, NCOIC, if you will, um, of the mm-hmm. department. Um, but yeah, those those courses all stood up um, pretty 
quickly or continued uh, even after relocating. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty significant uh, feat. So, um, so when we look at for comparison, I guess uh, for those I know there's some listeners out there who are part of the process of moving our silver flag course from Kadena uh, down to to Guam, where it is uh, currently. Uh, there were a lot of challenges with that move. Uh, um, I know the Guam site uh, struggled quite a bit uh, getting equipment and things like that that they needed. And so to see, you know, back then that uh, a whole fire school was able to pick up, relocate and immediately start. Um, yeah said a lot about uh definitely what impressive we did and, how we and i had the, business, the privilege so. of going to that silver flag site at anderson in 2015 early 2015 and it was very shortly after they'd moved and shout out to master sergeant retired mac nowlin he was the supervisor of that course and yeah i have to say i've, I've been to tyndall course yeah i've been to the guam course and uh both very good courses but those guys at guam during that time period they had a pretty tough circumstance. They didn't have a building. The trucks were parked kind of in the middle of a parking lot. They had to make do with what they had. And they were using their personal computers to deliver a lot of the training, a training that they had kind of created themselves, you know, with PowerPoints and, and uh, shout out to those guys. They, they made the best of a pretty, pretty tough situation. And it was an awesome silver flag course. Nice. And it probably helped with the realism, right? Yeah, Talk definitely. about bare base and yeah, it did. You know, we 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 slept in a tent, obviously, like you do at Silver Flag, but they didn't have any structure for a fire station. All you had was trucks in a Connex box, you know, with whatever it had in it, and yeah, it was pretty realistic wow. in that sense. <laughs> awesome. Um, so yeah, we um, in the 1990s too. We continued to with our investments uh, in vehicles and fire stations and equipment as well. Uh, so vehicle wise, uh, the P23 rolled out, right? In uh, 1993, I believe specifically. Um, and so yeah, uh, this rolled out uh, to replace the P2. Um, uh, the vehicle weighed 78,000 pounds and says, you know, in the books that it, it had a top speed of 72 miles per hour. Um, Man, imagine yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've, I've briefed this, uh, this lesson before, and I think it was actually during the, the last class I had, uh, one of the students kind of chime in and, uh, state that, yeah, it's probably one of the wheels rolling past you, um, as you're, you're familiar I'm mm-hmm. sure, with our, uh, Mm-hmm. with the hub issues on this one. Oh, yeah. so, uh, I'm, so I'm sure kind of I'm sure the guys put that to the test. If it says 72, let's see what we can make happen. <laughs> it's pretty fast for that truck. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so also uh, we started to standardize our, our training pits during this time as well um, in the 1990s. Uh, you know, in 1992, we actually set out to, uh, to have more environmentally sensitive uh fire pits you know because and this is where we we introduced liquid uh propane gas right um but prior to that we would just use jp4 jp8 and uh whatever else we could probably find Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and uh make it happen but uh you know you think about 92 you know they wrote out all these changes right with the environment Mm -hmm. and again still today we're still facing those same challenges yeah. and 
you know, still trying to be environmentally responsible. Right. Right. Yeah. We're, we're living so, through this history still and a couple of decades have gone by and just, it's a good example that t- progress is slow. Um, and, yes. and it's, it's hard to figure stuff like this out. And I know a lot of our listeners would probably argue that, um, propane isn't the most realistic, um, in terms of crash fire training and, you know, arguably so, but uh, really yeah. in terms of environmental sensitivities, I mean, we have to think about that stuff and, um, you know, if you got a better idea, come forward with it, you know, but, uh, right now this is, uh, this is the best idea for us. And hopefully in, in the future we'll have some kind of, I, I imagine in my opinion, it'll be some kind of virtual reality that is mm. so realistic that you won't need something like this. Um, and I know that's hard yeah, for us to think about now what we understand about virtual yeah. reality. It's like, well, you know, a video game's not going to replace, not going to replace mm-hmm. actually no. doing it. But I mean, you'd be surprised and, you know, look at how fast computers, for example, have, um, have progressed. And I, I talked to Mr. Gordon Graham and a couple episodes ago, and he said that his first computer had a 10 megabyte capacity. And it's like, wow. you know, now you're talking about in your hand, you have the capacity of what the space shuttle once had in your iPhone, you know? And wow, so that's if, you, if you put it on a scale like that, uh, imagine where our virtual reality is going to be. It could replace propane fire trainers in the future for us. Wow. Very good point. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, and I would expect us to, to be a part of that, that change too. Right. Yep. Um, you know, as we talked, like I said, uh, one of the, the common themes I've seen, you know, throughout our history is that we we continue to evolve, we continue to change, we can continue to get better and do better for our people, right? And that kind of leads to, you know, the next point uh, it, for, for fire stations. Uh, this is where fire stations in the 90s really started to get some traction. And actually, we can credit this to uh, Brigadier General at the time, Eugene Lupia. So I, I think we've all, at least for our military members, have all heard of, you know, this award that's given out every year to an airman and an NCO. Um, uh, but, you know, it's kind of cool to know that he had a huge impact on the way we live um, in our fire stations now and the standard that we we kind of built upon. But um, it started with uh, at uh, McConnell Air Force Base, actually, uh, fire station number one there, uh, was designated at the time as the model fire station uh, for the Air Force. It was a 26,000, um, 26,500 square foot facility and it had a, a wide range of, of quality of life improvements and, and functional improvements as well. Um, it says here that the physical design represented seven design iterations. Initially, the fire station uh, was designed with seven drive-through vehicle stalls and two-person bunk rooms, uh, but the the two-person bunk room was was later converted um, to single rooms with closets uh, to basically match the Air Force dormitory standard at the time. Hmm. So they kind of said, "Hey, we're not going to bunk up people, put multiple people in rooms. We're going to, you know, basically give individuals their own space." Mm-hmm. Um, and so in addition to that, some of the other features that were added um, was uh, an emergency response room with fully computerized communication controls uh, consoles, so our dispatch center, right? Uh, an admin suite, you know, where our, where our leadership typically kind of sits, a conference room, 
uh, a gym, training classroom, cert test room, a full kitchen, HVAC, right? All of these features were added as standards and written into guidance in the 1990s. Hmm. Um, and again, credit to that to uh, General Lupia, kind of championing that for us. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Yeah. Ma- imagine having to uh, to stay in the same bunk room as somebody else right now. It's it's hard for us to imagine, but uh, you know, <laughs> you know, pre 1990s and that was normal. Um, yeah, I'd say even Matt, uh, early 2000s, right? Depending on where you were, because. Mm-hmm. If you had a station that was built prior to this, uh, you know, you still kind of had that standard. So, uh, again, at Vandenberg, uh, the, this was primarily at Station 2. We did get an uh, addition added on to it later. But uh, Station 2 was the headquarters building uh, there. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a place. It was the first run, right, for main base, off base response. So, and rescue ran out of there, too, right? So, if you wanted action, you wanted to be at Station 2. Um, but Station 2 is also kind of, you know, one of the smallest areas for, for sleeping and housing and firefighters. So I can remember as an airman actually having two beds in the in our room and sharing a room with uh, another firefighter. Hmm. Yeah, so, interesting. Well, I guess, yeah. you know, you're not going to replace all of the fire stations in the Air Force in 1996, right? It's going to take some time and... Correct. Even to this day, I know some of the facilities that exist have been around for a long, long time and had, you know, of course, renovations through the years, but they're still remnant of those old 1950s stations in some places. Yeah, for sure. Um, so some other exciting things, right? Uh, when we talk about development and, and uh, progression, uh, in 1993, uh, the Air Force, uh, or the DOD, I should say, um, uh, decided to um, or implemented the DOD firefighter certification system. Um, and it was accredited by uh, IFSAC, right? So 1993 is when we became official, if you will, or recognized at least, right, by the International Fire Service Accredita- Accreditation Congress. Um, and uh, the you know, the history books read that due to the United States Air Force's exemplary training program in firefighting, it became the executive agent for the certification program. So if you've ever wondered why the Air Force manages, you know, the certification process, right, um, for all of really DOD or why, you know, and you look at how we own the fire school for the most part, I know it's a, a joint school, right, or DOD school, but uh, you know, why we own that, you know, this is the reason why. And I'd further accredit that to going back to Chief Garland, right? Yeah, that's the, what I was going to say. Excellent standard, yeah. Mm-hmm. The standards that he set uh, early on, you know, we benefited from that and still do today. Um, so, uh, and kind of jumping into into the 2000s a little bit, but, uh, you know, I'll just highlight it since we're talking about it, but Pro Board, uh, we became accredited with them in 2003 as well. So, Uh, came a little bit later, 10 years later. Um, And then in uh, 96, um, the Air Force adopted uh, NFPA standards, right? Uh, um, But prior to that, uh, we we kind of, I'm assuming we kind of did our own thing, right? Or, you know, we had the IFSA manuals that we talked about. We had some sort of standardization, but, um, you know, uh, this is where we really uh, adopted uh, NFPA standards, which we still hold fast to today. Um, 
Interesting. And this is this could be one of those. Yeah, we we talked a lot in previous in our previous episodes about how you know change management is always a tough thing. You wonder what the change was like for this, not only in the Air Force but in the uh, American Fire Service and with the adoption of NFPA. And there's still areas that exist today that decided not to adopt NFPA standards. I know Phoenix is one of them where they have kind of their own way of doing business, and mm. um, you know. But th- th- I wonder what this change management looked like in that time. Yeah. So, and, and then the other pieces, you know, I really, I obviously, you know, from, from myself and, and you, you know, all we've known is NFPA, right. Um, and so to know that there were other options on the table, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of foreign to me that we mm-hmm. would go with anything else other than, than NFPA standards. Right. Right. Yeah, my, my guess is, just thinking out loud, is that the argument was, well, every fire department's different. Why should we have a centralized standard? Which, mm-hmm. you know, fa- fair enough, but this is much more broad of a standard. It's not telling you how to respond to calls necessarily. It's telling you to, you know, make sure that you don't speed and make sure that you have, um, you know, a standard workup of equipment on your truck and, and, yeah. and make sure that every firefighter is outfitted with an ensemble, you know. and yeah. but uh, Even down to, you know, how we how we construct our facilities. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that all plays a part, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I found that pretty interesting to know that's, that's when those things came about. Um, so I'll continue on with the nineties, uh, uh, 94, the Sanborn award, uh, uh, was born or, or named, I should say, uh, so previous or prior to that, it was a, just a sack award. Um, Strategic Air Command, um, and uh, but it wasn't until '94 that uh, this award was named after uh, Chief Ralphie Stanborn. He was a longtime fire chief at SAC who began his career uh, in World War II, actually, and uh, says he had a 44-year career in the Air Force Fire Protection. Um, and then we also uh, this year or in '94 started to recognize Air Force. Uh, firefighters of the years and also um, and one for our military and one for our civilian as well. Hmm, so interesting. You look at our awards program, it kind of goes, you know, back to the, to that time. Um, I think we probably already always recognized our folks, but this was probably that standardization across the board. Right. Just um, a little bit more formalized. Yeah. So, and there are still a couple of, I think we just got the, military fire officer award um named and i know that kind of went out to the field i don't think it got a lot of participation from what i mm-hmm. remember but mm-hmm. um you know that was an opportunity right for us to to be a part of uh history mm-hmm. uh, but i'd have to i'd have to say you know um at least for me right prior to getting into these books i didn't know a lot of our our heroes or our legends um our pioneers if you will that you know, you can say you would, you know, want something to be named after, or at least, you know, um, at least have the, the data to say, here's why, uh, too. So right. uh, maybe, maybe with the help of these documents and, you know, this course, you know, we can, we can be better suited in the future. Right. Spread this information. You know, me personally, I, I knew that Ralphie Sanborn had an award named after him, but I did not know that he had a 44 year career. Right. And uh, and I know you plan on talking about. I want to say his name's McAllister, right? Yeah, 
yep. and a pioneer highlight or some kind yep. of, he's the individual that has the hero heroism award yep. named after him, right? Yes, he does. Yeah. And we'll talk about him um, on the next, uh, next uh, part or episode session. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so in 95, uh, we also started to face some manner reduction uh, cuts or, or pressure to cut uh, some of our forces. And the idea was uh, and what that drove was for us to really start to rely on mutual aid. Um, and I kind of have on the slide here, you know, kind of a picture of uh, the Oklahoma City uh, bombing, actually, uh, that took place you know, in 95. You have a, a military member. You know, they're searching the grounds. He's got his BDUs on for those that uh, had the had the opportunity, the, the distinct pleasure mm-hmm. uh, to wear that uniform. Um, <laughs> yep. uh, but yeah, pretty cool to, to see, you know, us getting involved um, and, you know, not only relying on mutual aid from our partners, but providing that mutual aid um, as well. Um, and then another incident was uh, uh, the anthrax scare in Wichita City. So we had uh, firefighters uh, from the department there at McConnell uh, respond down to uh, uh, suspected anthrax exposure. Um, they set up tents, showers, containment equipment uh, to confine the, uh, the possible threat. But uh, later, you know, tests kind of determined that it was it was not actually anthrax. But, you know, our guys were, were ready to rock and roll. Um, mm-hmm. answer the call so so you're saying in in this time period is when we get a little bit more involved with our mutual aid partners <clears throat> at least uh from the history books that i've seen and we probably were doing it a little bit beforehand uh mm-hmm. now but uh um from what i've read when we got those those man in or the pressure to reduce our man in and and not hire as many civilians or, you know, military authorizations. Yeah. The idea mm-hmm. was like, Hey, we will ramp up our mutual aid uh, reliance. Um, right. Yeah. Time. You got to pick up the phone and call downtown to see if they can help you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, becoming accredited probably helped in that. I mean, we're, you know, we That's- talked about it in part two in the seventies and how we're morphing to really mirror the fire service outside of the fence. Um, you know, I think that, we're continuing to grow in the nineties as a military fire service to really provide basically the same level or capability that uh, our mutual aid partners are able to provide and why not join forces and help each other out. Yeah. Quality care. Right. For sure. Um, Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point. You know, we talk about uh, the nineties, right. We got to, got to, uh, talk a little bit about war, right? And our military operations other than war mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so in, in 92, um, you know, operations uh, Desert Storm and uh, or Desert Shield, I should say, in Desert Storm, uh, we played a, a huge part in that. And, you know, uh, one of the, some of the things that kind of came out of that um, is that we, we learned that uh, reliance on host nation support uh, was going to be a challenge. Um, I think, you know, we were thinking maybe we can have that same, you know, relationship uh, that we experienced back home, you know, mm-hmm. when we get downrange. But and I think I'd probably say even to this day, there, there are challenges, mm-hmm. right? With Yeah, I was going to say, does that sound familiar? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, here we are in the 90s, you know, uh, realizing that uh, 
there was going to be some some challenges there. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to highlight, uh, and again, I got to thank Chief Beatty for this information. He kind of sent me some reports. So I kind of had it in my briefing uh, prior uh, to him sending me these actual documents to support support it. But uh, when I got these reports, um, it just, you know, it was like, wow, it really added life to what we were kind of talking about and what I had already read. Uh, and so there was uh, a crew um, at uh, KKMC, and that stands for King Khalid Military City. Um, so it's uh, essentially a, an area or compound or base during the Desert Storm, Desert Shield operations that firefighters operated from or operated out of um, uh, for sorties and things like that. And uh, sortie generation, I should say. And so in two months time, uh, these crews uh, responded to uh, 1,700 or excuse me, 1,076 emergencies and logged 4,120 and a half hours on uh, other types of standbys and, and what have you. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. statistic there and uh and we mentioned this again i know we, we kind of repeat ourselves a few times here but i think that's a, i think that it's relevant because history repeats itself a little bit that uh, during wartime you know we could see correct this kind of stuff happen you know when you're really pushing the envelope with aircraft and everything else it's going to drive emergencies and mishaps and all that kind of stuff yeah it will you know especially when we're talking about uh you know an adversary that you know, could potentially match, you know, uh, our, our fighters in the air. Right. And, you know, you're going right. to see a lot more combat, um, taking place. So, uh, for sure, you know, and, you know, and for context, you know, you talk about a thousand calls, right. In, in two months. Uh, so Masao is a little bit of a, a little bit of a sleepy hollow. We get some, we're starting to see some action here lately, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we average about four to 500 and really more on the 400 in calls per year. Right. 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 So in a mm -hmm. whole year, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. these guys got more action um, in two months than we did in a, in a whole year. And yeah, that's so, crazy. Yeah. And so when I look at it, uh, so when I talk about the reports, it actually breaks down, you know, what these guys did. Right. And so you know, it's easy to kind of look at that number and be like, oh, how many of those were, uh, you know, just uh, uh, standbys or IFEs, um, you know, or whatever have you. But uh, it was pretty cool to see the breakdown. And uh, they had some significant calls. Um, let's see. Um, so uh, 157 in-flights, 31 ground emergencies, five crash landings, uh, three fires, seven medical emergencies. So that's actually kind of interesting, right? Uh, that number. Yeah, it is interesting. Kind yeah. of low um, where that's our primary today. Um, right. Uh, and then you had uh, 50 standbys for air vac, 780 standbys for ICT. So the ICT was the in integrated combat turnarounds and basically is what we call today hot refuse. So when, you know, aircraft lands and Okay. No, yeah. So it's so a significant chunk of this was um, hot pit refuel. It was, yeah. But five crash landings. I mean, yeah, that's pretty exactly pretty incredible. Yeah, green engine runs, but yeah. So it wasn't just you know the typical run in the mill, you know, things that we see. These guys actually got some action, and some of that was mm -hmm. um, 
the uh, and you can see here in the slides one of the A10s that crashed that the guys responded on. There's also F4 there. I don't know if you can see that, Matt, on your left side of the screen, those three photos there. That's the F4 crash. And then on the right uh, is the uh, is the A10 uh, crash. So that's two of the um, aircraft emergencies that they responded to during that time. And so uh, we're also in 92. I don't have a lot of details, but it just says that we support it. We were in Somalia as well. Um, so if there's anybody out there that's listening and you happen to support, uh, you were there in Mogadishu um, in 92 um, and, uh, you know, you provided fire support, you know, please uh, reach out. I'd love to, to have some more details on that. Um, in 95, we, su we supported the Balkans, uh, Kosovo conflict. Um, and then in 96, obviously, uh, we had the Kobar Towers. And I believe you had this on the, the podcast is that correct? No, I haven't yet, but I'm, you know, it's it's on our list of things to do. Chief Wayne Mello, yeah. out there at Holloman yep. Air Force Base, he was there for that, and I know that he tells the story about it. And Chief Mello, you know, if you if you listen to this, hit us up. I'd like to talk to you about that, or if anybody at Holloman, if you could, if you go knock on the chief's door and <laughs> ask him if you'd be interested in coming on, you know, I'd appreciate that. Nice. All right, so. Uh... So that's all I have for the, the 80s and 90s. I'll close with our, our pioneer highlight. And, and today that's going to be Major General Norma E. Brown. So I know we talked about her during our last uh, session, but uh, uh, General Brown was actually, you know, in my opinion, you know, somewhat of a uh, pioneer um, herself, right? Uh, she, you know, outside of the fire service and what she did for, for us, um, you know, she kind of seemed like she kind of did her own thing, right? Was really kind of cut from a different cloth and just different. Uh, so she was born in 1926. Um, we don't have a lot of information on her upbringing or anything like that, but we know that she graduated from uh, Madison High School in 1944 and then graduated from the uh, Florida State University in 1949. Um, after her graduation, she actually taught uh, PE uh, for two years before she came in the Air Force through uh, Officer Candidate School. Um, and then in 1951, she commissioned, um, uh, received a commission in the Air Force. And so you can see here on the slide that uh, from 1951 to 1972, she had assignments in uh, San Antonio, Washington, England, Taiwan, uh, Wright-Patterson, Air Force Base and uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, and also obviously in Illinois, which is where she was the uh, the director of the schoolhouses down there at Chanute. Uh, Run to Illinois. Yes, yeah. yes, sir. But then in 1972, she relocated uh, <clears throat> to uh, Goodfellow Air Force Base, where she became the, the first wing commander. Uh, the first female, I should say, wing commander there at Goodfellow, which was something I didn't know, but that was pretty cool. So in addition to uh, the fire school there, you know, having things named after her, you'll you'll also notice um, that gym, I believe that's, I think it's still there, that's across from uh, the Air Force Inn or Angelo Inn mm -hmm. uh, there was named after her and there's some other things, but, you know, that also is a reason why and part of that. So uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. And to be a, a female 
in the 70s and to be named as a wing commander, that's a pretty incredible achievement. I think that's hard for us to understand today because it's now common practice, which is a good thing. But yeah, back in that, that back in that time, that's, that's really impressive. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, and I say she was kind of different too, because, uh, you know, you look at, um, you know, the 1949, 1950s, uh, a female gym teacher, I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think it'd be safe to assume that that was pretty, um, unique too right mm-hmm. yeah you know so we think about how our society was uh during those right. times so yeah again it's it's hard for us to um understand it because we've you know we we live in a time now where it's it's commonplace but back in that time yeah, yeah. i'm sure she faced uh, her fair share of obstacles absolutely yeah uh, and so in 1982 she uh retired from the air force and also received the order of the sword right so we kind of know what that uh, award is, a, a significant uh, accomplishment or achievement. Um, and it's something that is given to right officers uh, for their outstanding support of uh, enlisted uh, personnel, enlisted programs, right? And, and basically taking care of, you know, your enlisted force. And so um, I'd, I'd imagine she had some impacts on other uh, uh, enlisted entities as well um, as ours. Yeah, I know that that's a coveted award. Yeah. And you did mention too, right? We mentioned in part two that the trainer at the fire academy for yes. Officer Two and Three courses is named after her. You mentioned that, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so for sure. Yeah, those those things are, are named after her uh, there. And, you know, again, you know, why? And, this is some of the reasons why and what we talked about in part two, also the reason why. Um, and then in 2013, uh, she was uh, inducted uh, into the Military um, Firefighter Heritage Foundation Hall of Fame and uh, received the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, from them as well. So her legacy is cemented there. Um, she'll forever be remembered uh, for her support and uh, uh, service um, to us, um, uh, to our, or to the fire service. Yeah, most certainly. And a lot of great contributions from major general Norma Brown and, and all the other pioneers that you've highlighted up to this point. And, uh, a lot of great information covered in the eighties and nineties. It, it seems that we probably covered a little bit more today. And I think that's probably because this, you know, people are still around that, uh, that live through this time period. And so they're able to contribute to some of this information. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more known about this time period and maybe we were writing things down a little bit more often in the eighties and nineties than we were before that. But, uh, I look forward to, uh, talking about the early two thousands up to where we are today. Is that what we're going to get talk about in part four? Yes, that's it. All right, sir. Well, I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. Yep. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FireDog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this regularly posted to our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the FireDog Podcast, and on Instagram at the FireDog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and follow. Stay plugged into every new episode. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the fire station. Keep an eye out for part four of the Air Force Fire Protection History Series, the final part of the series where we cover the 2000s through the present time. This is Matt Wilson. 
and Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Until next time, stay safe.